Hi. Before we get to the sermon, there was something I wanted to spend a couple minutes on. As your pastor, and, and frankly, just more as your American Christian friend here. One of my mentors was John Perkins, a 92-year-old now who didn't graduate from the eighth grade, but has a PhD in the grace of God and racial justice. And John one time was telling me that the best time to talk about race never comes, but that it's always better to do it between the storms. He gave me the idea that if you're just talking right after the storm or in the middle of the storm, it really shows you haven't done much since the last storm. We talked last week about the outrageous assaults on elderly Asians, and we want to keep that before us. But this week also marks the start of the trial of the man accused of killing George Floyd, triggering the riots of last spring. Laura and I live about four houses away from George Floyd was living. So it was a personal issue uh, for us. And it made me realize that the time to talk about our inability to get past or get through race is between the storms. We don't want to have our next word be in the middle of the next set of protests. We want to be doing something before that. So our church decided that we would begin with the leaders. We would talk about race and inclusion and our attitudes toward that among ourselves first. And so for this last winter, the staff has been going through a, a diversity and equity and inclusion series of trainings with an African-American pastor. And these conversations have been hard and they've been rich. And that's to set us up for taking the next step in the journey between the storms. We want to have Dr. Brenda Salter-McNeil come and talk to us about the gospel and about race and how the two are married in the church. And when Dr. McNeil talks, it is not to our heads, but to our hearts, and not just to our hearts, but to our hands and feet. And so our hope is that after Dr. McNeil comes and preaches, we will start a book club. I hope a whole series of book clubs and ask you to read a book about a workshop on racial justice. How do we move from where we are toward the justice and grace of Jesus in this area of race? We'll read that book together through the late spring and early in the summer, Dr. McNeil will return and we will have a workshop that says, in this place, at this time, how will these people who follow Jesus relate to people of all races? And where are we in our journey toward justice? I hope that you'll join us. I hope as you watch the TV screens and talk with your friends, that this will be an urgent matter of prayer for you. And that in this season between the storms, we will say, Lord, what would you have me do? Let's pray now as we prepare to hear God's word. Lord Jesus, I thank you that you came filled with grace and truth and had the courage to speak both as needed. I pray that your words this morning would would sink deep into our hearts and that you would blow away 
any of the chaff of just stuff that I believe. And that long after we leave this place, your Holy Spirit would keep that life-giving word seeping into our hearts, our heads, our hands, and our feet. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Spirit. Amen. As we walk toward Easter this Lenten season, we have a series about how we go from this to that. What Jesus might have us give up in order that we would be able to give to in the name of the God who loves us. We started that off with Cheryl, who talked about how Jesus calls us to turn from being distracted by all the busy, important things we do to becoming present to God, present to other people. Eugene picked that up and talked about how we should be able to turn from the exhausting, never-ending motion that we live in to receive the gift of Sabbath rest from our God, as did our Savior. Last week, Brett taught young people and old among us alike how Jesus calls us to turn from the endless, society-driven pursuit of more to find a life of enough, enough in Christ. I'd like to continue that walk toward the cross and the tomb and the empty grave today and talk about how we should give up religion when it goes bad. In many ways, this has been a tough year for religion and for religion at Menlo Church. Between COVID and social upheaval and all the pain stirred up around John's departure, it's been hard for people who are religious. Religion gets a bad rap these days. It gets blamed for turning people into narrow-minded, judgmental fanatics, whether they're storming the Capitol or enforcing Sharia law on women, whether they're being co-opted for some far-left political agenda or some far-right program. And I'm struck by how true that is here on the peninsula. By how many times since Laura and I have come here that we've been told how it's almost embarrassing to talk about going to church or about being believer, whether it's at work, at Google, or at the Parents Association. It's a tough time for religion. What's tougher is that I'm, I'm in the religion business. I think that we ought to define religion a little bit today. I'm going to use religion as the important human work, the work that human beings do to try to figure out what this invisible God of the universe is like, what that God is saying, how we as human beings ought to respond in our lives and in our community. And the patterns, the rituals that we set up are called religion. Sometimes they're great good. They're traditions that give us life. They are things that we do, religious things that comfort one another. But other times, religion can become almost toxic in its effect on the soul, in its effect on the community. There's a quote that says, um, when Christian believers gather in churches, everything that can go wrong sooner or later does go wrong. That's so true. The church is a broken human place. Outsiders see that. They conclude there's really nothing in this religion business except maybe 
business and dishonest business at that. You know, I think that nobody is tougher on religion and the church than the early church. This group of followers of Jesus, they compiled stories about Jesus that we call the Gospels, and right from the beginning, there is religion messing things up. And at the very beginning of the very beginning, I I think that it's pretty clear that the Gospel of Mark is the first of the stories of Jesus that were written. At the very beginning of Mark's Gospel in chapter 2, there are five stories back to back to back that are conflict between Jesus and the religious leaders. And that it ends with the religious leaders, the Pharisees, leaving Jesus to go out and plot how to kill him with their deadly enemies because Jesus is more dangerous yet. And we're only in chapter three of the Gospel of Mark. What I'd like to do this morning is to take three of those stories in Mark to show the difference between following religion and following Jesus. And where we might need to turn from our religion, the way we're practicing it, where it might have gone bad, in order to be able to turn to the life that Jesus promises. You know, one of the things that people do when they read the Bible is they look for the answers that God gives them. I I think it's really, in many ways, more important to look for the questions that God has. And so as you hear these three little stories, I'm not going to take all five, just three of these stories from the Gospel of Mark, I'd like you to listen, what are the questions before what are the answers? Here is the first reading from the Gospel of Mark. A few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home. So many gathered that there was no room left, not even outside the door. He preached the word to them. Some men came, bringing him a paralytic, carried by four of them. Since they could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus and, after digging through it, lowered the mat the paralyzed man was lying on. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, Why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Immediately, Jesus knew in his spirit that this is what they were thinking in their hearts. And he said to them, why are you thinking these things? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, take your mat, and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has the authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. He got up, took his mat, and walked out in full view of them all. This amazed everyone, and they praised God, saying, we have never seen anything like this. So, what's the first question here? Isn't it the Pharisees who sit there and go, who does he think he is? God's the only one that can forgive sins. The religious people think we're just there to point those sins of other people out. And then the second question immediately comes right back from Jesus. Not an answer, but a question. 
Jesus sees them, he knows what they're thinking, and he says, tell me, what do you think is easier? To talk about forgiving somebody or to heal them? Where is the real power from God? Here's our first place where Jesus and religion go different ways. So often religious become, religions become about what's right and what's wrong. Who's right and who's wrong? Jesus is about standing in front of people and offering forgiveness that leads to healing, that leads to wholeness and life. With the people that check out Menlo Church, this religion, where they see us more concerned about who's right and who's wrong, who's in and who's out, who's flying to heaven and who's frying in hell, more concerned about that than they are about the people who come and show up. God has shown up in the story of Mark. Jesus stands right in front of people not to bring a new set of religious rules or religious clothes that we have to put on, but to bring, but to bring forgiveness and the life that is really life. One of my favorite books is uh, Vanishing Grace, by Philip Yancey, and he said, uh, I once read a description of church as a place where a nice, pleasant, bland person stands in front of other nice, pleasant, bland people and urges them to be nicer and more pleasant and more bland. It's a great description of a religious church. But Jesus wants lame people to stand and stuck-in-place people to walk, and people broken by sin to be forgiven? That's the first question. The second comes almost immediately following it in the Gospel of Mark as Jesus is going to a different place. Let's hear what happens with Jesus. Once again, Jesus went out beside the lake. A large crowd came to him, and he began to teach them. As he walked along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, Jesus told him, and Levi got up and followed him. When Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with him and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. When the teachers of the law, who were Pharisees, saw him eating with the sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said to them, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have come not to call the righteous, but sinners. So what's the question here? Why is Jesus eating with those people? How are these words of Jesus supposed to make me feel? I don't want you to just think. I want you to feel Phillips Brook was a famous preacher of the last century. He said that one guide into hearing the words of Jesus is that he comes to afflict the comfortable and comfort the afflicted. Religion says, get away, separate yourself from sinners so that you won't be defiled. And in contrast to religious people, Jesus joins the tax collectors and sits at the table with the sinners. He extends the love of grace, loving grace of God to those who have been pushed outside by the religion of Israel. Does Menlo's religion draw those people in? Or does it separate us 
from those people. They feel normal, but they aren't religious. Please notice here that the story is not just about drawing them into our church. It's about going to Levi's house, about living grace and joy. Part of our statement here of mission says that we believe everybody is welcome. But are they welcome really? Would they feel like they're welcome? My, uh, my last church, uh, CPC, was much like uh, Menlo. And uh, I remember walking to an evening meeting, must be 20 years ago, and uh, as I got up to the church doors, I saw that outside there was a small crowd and they were smoking like chimneys and then putting their butts out in the ashtray that was provided there and lighting up another one and chatting up a storm. And as I, as I walked in, I really had to walk through that, that group and then continued over to the outside door. And just inside that door, was one of our parishioners. His name is Buzz Busby. Buzz is standing there watching the smokers outside. Buzz was a piece of work. He was what we would call a loose cannon on the deck of life. A 150-watt personality that was always on and for about 20 years had been on with alcohol driving his life, pushing his children away, terribly hurting his wife, almost destroying his message, and sitting in the back pew of the church every week. And then one day, um, one day Buzz found that in his drunkenness, he, uh, he had done the unforgivable in his life. And it knocked him, not to his knees, it knocked him on his face. And two of his friends had been waiting for that and picked him up and walked him to the Alcoholics Anonymous meeting at our church basement. And he sat there in the back rows in all his denial, pitying those people who couldn't get it together, knowing I just need to get back on stride, and then realized that God was talking to Buzz through those smoking chimneys, those broken, sinful, alcoholic sinners. And one day he held up his hand and he says, I'm, I'm Buzz. And I'm an alcoholic. And they all turned to him and said, welcome. They said, God found me. I didn't find God. God found me there. And so now Buzz stands just inside the door of the church watching the people smoke outside because he craves the cigarette smoke. And he waits for them to come in so he can put his arm around him and walk him downstairs. And he turned to me and he pointed outwards and he said, you know, that's my real church. And I looked at him, I said, that's what sacred ground is really like, isn't it? That's, that's Jesus with every single one of us. A famous preacher was once asked how he prepared these incredible sermons, and he said, every week I remember that there is a broken heart in every pew. Like my friend Buzz maybe like the woman in front of you in line at Safeway. And unless we remember that, our religion will not only not connect with those folks who have the broken hearts, it will push them away. 
C.S. Lewis once was asked about sharing his faith in a secular society. He said, I've discovered it's the distance between dating a virgin and courting a divorcee. Lewis wrote to his friend, a divorcee won't fall for sweet nothings from their suitor. She's heard it all before. She has a basic distrust of romance. People who feel burnt by the church have a basic distrust of religious words. In modern America, the head of InterVarsity estimates about three-quarters of all young outsiders aren't pagans, they are post-Christians. They've been through the church doors and they've walked out the back. They are the divorcees of faith. And our words sound religious and our songs sound scratchy and out of date because of the way we act out our religion. The answer is not more religion. Madeline Lengel was a, a novelist who married an actor and they lived uh, among the arts community in New York. Some of the most secular people that she ever met, and she wrote one time, we draw people to Christ, not to church. We draw people to Christ not by discrediting what they believe, not by telling them how wrong they are and how right we are, but by showing them a light so lovely that they want with all their hearts to know the source of that light. That's, that's the role of the church because when I come together and in my brokenness, my little light that Jesus has put inside of me connects with a couple others when things are before Jesus, they create a light so lovely that other people want to know the source. That's the second question. How can you spend time with people like that? Listen to the third question, because this is where the story ends. This chapter of the story is only in Mark chapter 3, but in some ways, everything is anticlimax after this. It says this, another time, Jesus went into the synagogue and a man with a shriveled hand was there. Some of them were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus. So they watched closely to see if he'd heal on the Sabbath. Jesus said to the man with the shriveled hand, stand up here in front of everybody. I bet he came and hunched over with the hand behind him. And then Jesus asked the leaders, which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill? But the leaders remained silent. He looked around at them in anger and deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts. He said to the man, stretch out your hand. I, I, I love the way the Living Bible says that. It says, deeply angered by their indifference to human need, Jesus said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was completely restored. And then the Pharisees, the religious, went out and began to plot with the Herodians, the politicians, how they might kill Jesus. What's the third question here for the religious. It's, it's pretty straightforward from Jesus. How do you see the law of the Sabbath? Is it to save life or to kill? When people look 
at Menlo on the Sabbath, what do they see? At the very least, Jesus is saying, this is not about being Presbyterian or Baptist or Catholic or spiritual but not religious. This is about life and death. Jesus daring us to do something on the Sabbath that may not look religious. Even worse, Jesus dares to do something radical right in the middle of church. How sacrilegious. You see, for the Jews, the Sabbath has been sacred for over a thousand years. Remember, Moses rescued people from Egypt and comes down from the mountain with the Ten Commandments, the first four about how you deal with God. No other gods before me. Don't take the Lord's name in vain. No graven images. And the fourth, the fourth says, remember the Sabbath to keep it holy. God says, I built this world in six days and on the seventh, I stopped. So work for six days and on the seventh day, stop, rest. Not a word about church. Not a word about religion. I really wish it was there. I really do. Remember to keep the Sabbath holy, to give 25% of your pre-tax income. Sundays at 11 o'clock. But it's not there. It just says, in the words of Jesus, remember the Sabbath. To rest. To save life and not kill. By the time Jesus comes, the religious people have said, keeping the Sabbath means you have to go to church, you have to come at this time, dress this way, can't eat this much, can't cook your food, can't wash your clothes, you can't do work in your fields, you can't do anything else except exactly what we tell you, when we tell you, how we tell you. They had made the Sabbath day arrest into a straight jacket, a religious jacket, and the only two people who could wear that jacket, who could keep the Sabbath poor, are the religious fanatics who could do it because that's all that they live for. They didn't have a real life. And the other kind of people um, who could do pretty well keeping the Sabbath were the rich people. Uh, the rich people in Judea and on the peninsula, the rich people can keep the Sabbath pretty pure because they can hire poor people to work on the Sabbath. Back then and here and now, Jesus comes to church. And he sees a man with a withered hand. There's a lot of us out there today who have withered hands. For some of you, it literally is physical. You're sure you'll never get better. And for others of you, your withered hand is a withered heart. You've got a relationship that's gone so far south, you can't even see how you can get home. You're angry. For others of you, the withered hand is your job. You hate the person you are at work. For some of you, the withered hand is that you've been praying about this blankety-blank thing for years. You've tried your best to be good, and it never gets good. And you're looked. That withered hand is different for every one of us. But Jesus turns to people with withered hands on the Sabbath and every other day, and he says, stand up and stretch out your hand. Remember? There's a broken heart in every pew. It's a practically a Crosby family motto. Our kids roll their eyes when we say to some other people a quote from George MacDonald, there is nothing so dangerous to the soul as the habitual touching of holy things. Nobody is in more danger from religion than the religious because religion can so easily become toxic, a uh, 
a measure up way to get to God where you never measure up for leaders and for people who want to be good people. Do the folks who watch Menlo Church feel that pressure? Laura and I had a great um, time in the park with a a young woman, a a single mom whose uh, husband deserted her with two little kids. And they're teenagers now, and she's moved uh, to Menlo and has found out that she has uh, stage four cancer. And we looked across the park over at the church, and I wondered, is she really welcome here where everybody looks so together? But then, she said, she saw COVID hit the church. And when she saw John and Menlo dragged into the papers and embarrassed, her response was, Welcome to my world. There's a broken heart in every pew. Sometimes religious can stop us from seeing that. Sooner or later, I hope, we're going to be able to get back together on the Sabbath. I hope it's sooner. But I want to ask you, what church are you coming back to? What religion are we going to preach? What religion are we going to live out? Will we be the fellowship of the withered hand? a broken heart in every pew, stretched out hands that draw others in, or are we going to be the clenched hands of the religious people, keeping the bad people away? Mark Rutland's a pastor, and he talks about a a survey where Americans were asked, what words would you most like to hear? What phrases would you most like to fear? And he predicted that the first choice would be, I love you. He was right. Number two was, I forgive you. And that was great because it worked into his sermon. But number three took him by surprise. The third most favored phrase in the survey was, supper is ready. It it dawned on him and and on me that these three statements, I love you, I forgive you, supper is ready, They really form a summary of the gospel. Jesus asks the religious at Menlo Church that same question. Do you love me? Do you want to be forgiven? Is it time for dinner? So that's the question that Jesus is asking the religious folks at Menlo, the the, do they hear, I love you? Do they hear, I forgive you? Do they hear, supper's ready? And to all the folks around the religious folks at Menlo Church, it's the same question as in that great old movie. The question, guess who's coming to dinner? Well, can you guess who's coming to dinner? And, and when he shows up, Can you guess who he's bringing with him? Let's prepare not only our hearts, but our lives for the feast that no one should miss. Lord Jesus, I thank you for inviting us to this table where everyone is welcome, where nobody is perfect, where anything can happen, where again and again people do not hear 
how to measure up, but they hear that they are loved and they are forgiven and that you, the God of heaven and earth, have gone to hell and back to prepare a feast for each one of us. May it taste good in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.